Open up to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. Last week, uh, David did such a great job uh, serving us and walking us through such a beautiful part of this book of 1 uh, 1 Timothy, the the end of chapter 1 that kind of sets us up for what we're about to dive into here for the next uh, the next few weeks, and, and I know it's the back end of fall break here, but we're starting uh, three, three weeks in, in what might be three of the most controversial texts that we've, I've, I've ever preached here at, uh, at Providence. Three, of the, the, the three texts that uh, have been dissected, talked about, gone through over and over and over, uh, tor- tor- torn apart, put back together, looked up, down, all over the place. Uh, three weeks over some very difficult texts, and I'm, uh, I'm not going to lie, I've kind of had these three weeks circled on my calendar for a while, uh, circled on my planning calendar and, uh, and, and really kind of knowing that these are coming. They are big texts for, with, with a lot for us to, uh, to learn, a lot for us to take in as we work through them. And before I get into our text this morning... I kind of want to speak just a little bit about what it is that we're doing here in the first place whenever we stand up here uh, and, and gather to, together. There's, there's a few ways that we can uh, approach the, the, these texts over the next few weeks. One, I can preach through them exactly what they, uh, like, as though I know exactly what they mean, as though I know every nuance of the Greek, as though I know everything that was intended whenever Paul said them and exactly how to apply them today, uh, and then I can hold you accountable to what I stand up here and say, and I, and, I can, and I can preach it in a way that says, this is it, no other way, this is how you understand these texts. Uh, or I can preach them apologetically, kind of mealy-mouthed, and, uh, and, and kind of apologize for things as we go, excuse a few things as being outdated here or there, and trying to force them into some sort of cultural notion of what we believe God should be like, and then I can kind of say, I think this is it, and, you know, take it or leave it kind of approach. Or I can try to work through these texts with you, do the hard work of exegesis and, and, and hermeneutics. Now, those are two big churchy words. Exegesis simply means drawing out from the text what is there. Hermeneutics is the science of studying Scripture and being able to apply Scripture. So we can do the hard work of drawing out what is there, understanding what is there, and then applying it to our uh, lives uh, and and see what what it is that that this text that Paul writes to a pastor in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, how that applies to us here in Jefferson City uh, today. And then let you do the same hard work as you walk out of this place, not simply uh, accept whatever it is that I spoon feed and throw out there and say, take this, this is your, uh, your daily vitamin and you're good, but instead you too do the hard work of understanding what it is that we are reading and we are uh, going through and then, and then kind of see where we all come out. Like those are kind of the approaches we can do here. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom I will look. 
He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. I don't pretend that I get everything right whenever I stand up here, and I certainly would not pretend to uh, be anywhere near that category of humble and contrite. I am far too aware of my uh, sin and, and, and who I am to put myself anywhere near those categories, but I do want to be one that is humble enough that can stand up here and do all I can to not assert my own agenda upon the text. Uh, instead, let, let the text read me and let, let me simply uh, try to explain what is there. I do my best every week whenever I stand up here to do exactly that, to tremble at the weightiness of what it is that I get to do up here each week. And here's what I know will happen as we go through these texts over the next three weeks. One, God's word will be our authority. There is no question about that. If you look at our core values, that is number one, and that is number one for a reason. Other things may inform us, other things may shape our application, but God's word calls us into question. We do not call it into question. Now, certainly we read it, certainly we, we try to ask questions of the text in a way that we understand it more, but not ask questions of a text in a way that we say, this can't be this way because we don't agree with it. Right? So this will be the case over the next few weeks. And, and Lord willing, as long as I stand up here and do this, that God's word will be our authority. So that's one thing that I know will happen over the next few weeks. Two, even if we can all agree that God's word is our authority, it doesn't mean that we're all going to agree on what it says, what it means, or how it applies. The, the spirit simply doesn't work that way and that he says, this is how it is and it applies this way across the board. Would it be easier if the Spirit worked that way? Certainly it would. But that's simply not how it works. In fact, I'd, I'd bet my house that we're going we're to disagree some over the next few weeks. N not like a few of us in here will disagree, but like all of you will disagree with me on some point that I make over the next few weeks. That's just the nature of these texts. And I just want to tell you up front, it's okay. It's okay if we don't fully agree on everything and hold the exact same position on these issues. Our goal here at Providence is unity, not uniformity. Our goal here is that we be unified around the gospel, and there are parts of this that are, that are, that are non-negotiables, that we've got to be on the same page about. But there's other parts of this that we're just simply not going to be in full agreement on, but it doesn't mean that we can't be uh, working towards a common goal, even though we may disagree on kind of how it works out. It's kind of like yesterday. I was driving back from uh, Orlando. I was at a Bucky's in Daytona Beach wearing my bright orange Tennessee Vol shirt, and I had a couple of different people, one an LSU fan, one a Georgia fan, one, I don't even know what, what Fanny was, but they all said, I can't say go Vols, but I can say beat Bama, right? We're not going to agree on things, but, but, but we can be unified around, around one common goal, right? That's probably a terrible analogy, but I thought I'd work it in anyway. Um, as we work through these texts, it's okay if we disagree. I hope you can live in that tension. I've learned that we have to live in that tension. The, the reality is, the way my theology, as in how I interpret the text, yes, God has put me in a place where I'm an elder at a church, and I get to stand up here and teach, and I get to be able to work through things, and, 
and, and Lord willing, you guys would be able to listen and learn and apply those things. But the reality is, there's probably no two people on the planet who believe exactly the same on every theological point. We disagree on things. And it's okay. It is absolutely okay. So I don't stand up here and say, you have to believe everything that I stand up here and say. But I also don't stand up here and just say things for, you know, fun. And just say things that, eh, take them or leave them. I absolutely believe that this is, this is my understanding of what Scripture is here. And some of these things will be binding on us as a church. Some of these things may not be binding on you as a person, but they will be reflected in how we do church and how, we, how church kind of shapes and what it looks like as we go through this. And so disagreeing on these issues does not mean disfellowshipping on these issues. And I hope that you can get there too. So with all that said, that kind of prep there, and I may need to say all of that every week for the next few weeks, uh, let's get into chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, that's basically four different words that say the same thing, prayer, uh, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So last week, David taught us about how Paul was drawing out the reality that when Jesus comes, he kind of demolishes the, the wall of separation, the wall of hostility, is what he talked about uh, last week, between Jews and Gentiles, between Pharisees and sinners, between the elite followers of God and the the, 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 the pagans and those that, that, that don't know God at all, that Jesus kind of destroys all of those tears that people had built and kind of flattens out everything. No longer are there tears of God's love or God's people because Jesus rewrote all of that and he has given us all access to both God and godliness. There's not like the certain people like the Pharisees that have a, a, a hotline to God, have an easier way to godliness or a uh, uh, you know, kind of have a, a cultural advantage to godliness. All of that's been destroyed. And instead, we are all kind of flattened out and that we all, we all exist on the same plane and the same uh, ground. So that was last week. Two weeks ago, I highlighted how Paul was trying to teach Timothy how to pastor in this very secular city of Ephesus, a place with little Jewish presence and with almost no Christian presence. He was supposed to instruct this small group of believers that had begun to form in Ephesus. He was supposed to, to, uh, to, to take this small group of believers uh, and, and teach them how to live in a world that is hostile to them. And we talked about how increasingly this feels more and more relevant to us as Christians as the culture continues to move further and further away from Christian values. The church has reacted in a variety of ways to that. But what are we supposed to do? What way are we supposed to react? A few weeks ago, we saw where Paul tells us in, in verse 5 of chapter 1 that the aim of our charge is love. Love is the goal. So this is what we covered uh, a few weeks ago. Paul now gives us further instructions here in chapter 2 for how we are to start carrying, uh, uh, how, how we're to start carrying out our, our mission in a hostile culture. And what is his suggestion on how to carry out Life as a Christian in a hostile world, you pray. First thing first, you pray. He tells us this is what you need to do. Not an elite strategy or a political strategy of takeover. Uh, not one of hostility and kind of a, a, a forming a, a battle plan. 
not one of, of uh, even apologetics and, and saying this is the argument that you craft in order to, to get people to convert. None of that stuff is his uh, uh, initial instruction for what you are to do. Instead, what does he say? He says, pray. You start with prayer. And this isn't a prayer before going into battle of Lord, give me victory over my enemies. This is not the kind of prayer that he's talking about. The prayer takes on a very different tone than that. First, he says that the prayer should be for all people. So before we move to the kings and queens, which kind of jumps out at me whenever I read that, uh, and, and before we talk about authorities and all that stuff that he brings up, the, the, what he says first is that the prayer should be for all people, for everyone. This isn't just an, an, a generic everyone. In the sense of Paul says, pray for everybody. That's everybody. This is, it says, it's a little bit more in what he's trying to say there. It's specifically an, an exhortation to pray for all different kinds of people. For all mankind. Not just for all men. Do you, do you see a little bit of the difference in the nuance there? That he's not just saying, pray for every single person. The point he's making is that all people, regardless of their status, regardless of who they are, regardless of their cultural background, regardless of whether they're Jewish or Gentiles, regardless of whether they're Pharisees or not, regardless of whether um, they, are, they are people who grew up in, in Ephesus in a secular culture or they grew up in Jerusalem and they are Jewish, regardless of who they are, you pray for these people. The idea here is that there's no type of person excluded from prayer. Which if you know the story of the Pharisees, you see this in all kinds of parables that Jesus, uh, that Jesus offers. Whenever he talks about the pagan and the tax collector, he talks about the, the, the tax collector that's offering up prayers and just beats his breast and says, God forgive me as a tax collector. And the, the, the Pharisee says, thank you that I'm not like him. See, the idea was that the Pharisee felt like he didn't need to pray for that guy because that guy was outside of God's kind of covenant promises anyway. And the point that Paul is making is that everybody gets in on this. Everybody gets prayed for. There's nobody that you look at and you say, that guy doesn't count. That guy's not worthy of grace. That guy is a guy that I can't pray for. Everybody, all kinds of people, every person from every walk of life, from every background, everybody gets in on this, which may seem like a very elementary idea to us. But in a world that is hostile to the gospel, it can be very easy to adopt an us versus them mindset. I don't care what news channel you decide to watch, it is built on an us versus them mindset. And they profit the more they can get you to buy that mindset. I don't care what YouTube you know, channel you watch, you follow that algorithm enough they know that they will make more money off of you if they can convince you to join a side and then fight the battle. And if you can do that, if they can do that, they can monetize you. They can scare you, and they can, they can get you riled up, and then they can draw you over to their agenda and to their kingdom. That is the way that this world's culture is built. And we're really, really good at it. Better than we've ever been, a, been at it in the history of Mankind. We have computer algorithms built to make us versus them. And what Paul says is there is no us versus them in this one. That is not what we're doing. Paul says this is not what you're called to, but instead our prayers are very much to, to, to put even them, if you want to think of it that way, whoever them is, 
your prayers should go towards them. So even if you find yourself falling in this us versus them mindset, the prayer is not, God, go get them. The, the, the prayer is, God, I, I want to lift them up to you and care for them. So is that how you pray? Is that how you live? That others, no matter who they are to you, friend or foe, are worthy of your prayer and the aim of your prayer is love for that person. We tend to think of things in terms of a competition. That one must succeed and the, for the other to fail. That in order for our side to, to do well, the other side has to do poorly. Whenever you set it up as us versus them, that's the dynamic that you, that you get to. This is not about all of humanity flourishing. This is about Republicans flourishing. This is about the Republican platform or the Democratic platform flourishing. It's not about caring for all. It's about caring for your side and your agenda. The reality is we don't, we don't think in the way that Paul is calling us to think here, which is basically that we're all on the same side. God doesn't see it as an us versus them. He sees all of us very much being on the same team. Republicans and Democrats, Tennessee fans and Alabama fans, Jews and Gentiles, we're all stuck on the same side in the same predicament. We all have the same fundamental problem. We love ourselves and our own little kingdoms far more than we love God. Doesn't matter which side you, you, you're on in these, these little kingdom squabbles we have here on earth. The reality is the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of earth is how God sees it. And we are all citizens of the kingdom of earth and running our own little kingdoms. And so it's not us versus them down here on this plane so much as it is we have sinned and God is here and we're all together here and God is here by himself. So we're all together on this. Do you see how that works? Do you see how that flattens everything out? You don't get to say, because I belong to this group, I'm closer to God. That's what the Pharisees did. And we've done it the same way. It's just we've substituted a thousand other different things and said that I'm closer to God because I belong to this group. We don't call ourselves Pharisees. We call ourselves by all kinds of other different names. But it's the same fundamental approach. And what Paul says is, no, 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 this is not anybody closer. We're all flat here before God. This is all in the same place. God doesn't see us as you versus you. He sees us far more as, as a world that desperately needs a Savior. We might have different idols. We might have different things that we yearn for. But the, at the end of the day, we're all stuck with the same problem. We are all great sinners in need of a great Savior. Paul then underscores the point by directing them to pray for people that they would be the least likely to pray for. The people that they are the least like is the ones that they are to pray for. The persecutors, the ones in power, the kings, he says, pray for those. Not those you agree with, not those you voted for, not those, not those that, that, that are on your side, that are leading your, your group, but instead Pray for those that are in power. And that is not pray again like they are suddenly struck down and removed from office and that, God, you would, you would do something miraculous kind of prayer. It's, it, 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 would be, it would be more like 
think of, think of it this way. What could be more unlike the Christians in Ephesus? Slaves, women, poor, outcasts, misfits, people who didn't belong, who didn't have a place, not the, not the, 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 the wise of the world, not the, the things that the, the world deemed valuable. That's who, that's who became the initial church in Ephesus. What could be more unlike that group of people than people in power? So yes, this is saying pray for, pray for kings, pray for authorities. Yes, it is saying that, and, 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 and our translation to that is, is in part that we should pray for presidents and for politicians and for organization leaders and all of those things, regardless of whether we have voted for them. We can say that is a very clear application of this, but it's more than just that. It's saying pray for the people that are the most unlike you and that are the most out to get you. Pray for the people that are the, the most set against you and your team. That's the ones you should be praying for. The ones that you have the least influence over because they simply are so far above you and apart from you and after you. That's the ones that you pray for. That's what Paul is trying to say here. Pray for those people, the ones most unlike you and that make your lives the most miserable. Pray for them. Furthermore, even though you are persecuted by these powerful men, your goal is not, is, is, is not that you would create the us versus them atmosphere full of bravado and arrogance and aggressiveness, but instead a life free from all of those things. That our lives and our churches would be marked by humility and peace that reflects that we do not belong to the kingdoms of this world. You see, the more we get hostile towards the other tribe, the more we get hostile towards them, the more we go after them, the more it communicates to a watching world what matters to us is our kingdoms here. And what we desperately need to communicate is that our kingdoms are not the most important, but God's kingdom is the most important. And so whenever, whenever we, can, we can see things, uh, you know, whether it be persecution or whether it just be simply, uh, you know, our, our causes that we love and that we support that, that don't go forward, and we can respond not with anger, not with hatred, not with, with, with this like uh, kind of like bravado aggressiveness, but instead we can live the way that Paul calls us to here, it screams out, hey, they're living for something more than just these little squabbles. They're living for something bigger than that. Our churches should be marked by humility and a peace that reflects that we do not belong to the kingdoms of this world, but to the kingdom of another world that values things vastly different than what we value here. We can pray for those most unlike us and that persecute us because in the end, they really aren't all that different than us. They want the same things, just in different ways. But we all need the same thing. Paul keeps going in, verses th in verse 3 and 4. He says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul says that it is good and pleasing to God that we live in this way, the way that is that is inclusive, free of dividing walls, free of these things that separate us, but instead put us together, free of a life of, of us versus them, 
And why do we live that way? Why do we live free of us, us versus them? Because God desires all people to be saved. That is quite a statement Paul makes there. That is quite a statement that he makes there that has made for endless debate. I'm just going to tell you right now, if, you got, if you like, you're a theology nerd and you're like salivating out there, all right, let's get into this. We're not going to solve this today. Um, it's not been solved in 2,000 years. It's not going to be solved today. But we can work through some of this. What do we make of this statement that God wants all people to be saved? We know elsewhere from Scripture that not everyone is saved. Romans 3, Romans 6, all have sinned, fall short uh, of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. I could quote a dozen other passages here, but for the sake of time, we're just going to stay, we're just going to keep on going. But, but we'll just say universalism is not an option. Not everybody goes to heaven. If you want to argue with me about that, we'll get some coffee and, and we can do that. But I'm just going to assume that we're all on that same page. God does not pardon all. But if he desires them to be saved, and they aren't all saved, does this mean that God isn't capable of carrying out his desires? Because if so, we've got a big problem. If God is not capable of carrying out what he desires, then he is no God at all because he is limited in some capacity. And if you limit God in any capacity, he ceases to be God. So what do we do with this? What is going on? Isaiah 59, 1 through 3 says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. So Isaiah makes two things very clear here in that passage. One, God's arm is not too short to save, i.e., he is not short on power. He can save, he can do, he, he, he is capable of saving all. But instead, that it is the sins of the people that keep them from being saved. It is their iniquity that keeps them from God. So then what is it that prevents God from saving? It is their sin. And it's here that the arguments abound. Because we know from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, what David read last week, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So Jesus came to save sinners, but we know that some are not saved. And now we're just right back where we started in this circle. You see how this works? We just kind of keep going on this. But, but we can learn some more. Some would argue here that what prevents God from saving all is that he gives people the power to choose and that man's will is the, finer fa the final factor on whether or not God saves them. So effectively, we are the deciding factor in our own salvation. There are some that would teach that. And if you hold to that, and, and those that do hold to that, I would not say that that is an unorthodox position. I would not say that that is a position you cannot hold. I would say that's not the position that I hold. Okay? The problem with that is that if we're dependent upon man's decision in order to, to save them, the problem with that is dead men don't come back to life. Our salvation isn't simply a matter of decision, but the payment of a ransom due for our sin. 
We can't just decide to be a Christian any more than a baby decides to be born. This is, this is Jesus' whole argument in John chapter 3. We love to quote uh, you know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. But if you keep reading and all of that, what he talks about is how the Spirit moves where it wants. And you have no control over that. A, a, a baby is born, but the baby has no, no decision on, on when it is born. This is Jesus' whole point with Nicodemus. So all of this leads me to a few observations, all right? All, let's just work through some of these things, and, and some of y'all are going to be satisfied by this. Some of y'all are not, and we can, we can debate some more. There's plenty to debate here. But here is a few things that I just want to make of observations from this text, all right? One, our sin is what makes each of us in need of a Savior. It is our sin that will keep us from salvation apart from a saving work of God to draw us to him. The wall of hostility that David talked about last week is not, not, not just between persons and groups. That's what he's talking about there. But now, the way that, he, that Paul continues to talk about it is that this wall of hostility is between man and God. Built brick, one brick at a time by our own sin. So the wall isn't between groups, but instead now it has changed and that there is a dividing line between us and God, and that is built by our sin. Okay? So one thing we can affirm is that it is our sin that makes us in need of a Savior. J.I. Packer says, the fact remains that, he says, no matter what you think about God's sovereignty and, and, and human will and however you sort through this, the fact remains that a man who rejects Christ thereby comes the cause of his own condemnation. The second thing we can see is that God is not bound by our wills and our decisions, but chooses to work through them. Now that statement is loaded, all right? He's not bound by our wills and our decisions, but he chooses to work through them. He has not submitted himself to somehow being bound to our wills and our decisions. Our will is not sovereign over God. Do you see what I'm saying there? Our will is not over God in any way. Our decisions are not over God. And I've, I've never met a, a, a Christian that couldn't affirm this statement. I wouldn't have come to God if he had not drawn me first. We would all affirm that. I've never met a Christian who wouldn't say, I came to God all on my own. Every Christian I've ever talked to has said, I would never have come if he had not come and got me first. We all know that's true by experience, that God came and drew us in. In order to find Jesus, he had to reveal his gospel first and find us. God is always the initiator, always, without exception. However, with that being said, I've never met anyone that would say they became a Christian against their will either. God uses and works within our wills. How does that work? I don't have a clue. It is a mystery. It is absolutely a mystery. Saving faith is an act of a, of a will that was once hostile to God that has had that wall of hostility removed. How does God do that? It is a mystery. God has not chosen to reveal that to us. And if you're going to study the ways in, that God works and the things that he does in our lives, you're going to have to get very comfortable with mystery. He simply does not tell us everything there. I firmly believe that God's salvation is a sovereign 
work by God alone. That our sin is what keeps us from responding to the free offer of grace. And that God works in and through the human will to accomplish his ends of salvation. I have no idea how those things go together. J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which is a fantastic book on this topic. You should read it. He talks about, he calls it an antinomy, is what he calls it. And, and, and what that means is it's an apparent contradiction that never actually contradicts. And the analogy that he uses is standing on a railroad track. If you stand on a railroad track and you look down the railroad track, it looks as though those tracks eventually come together and intersect, right? But if you keep walking down that track, they never do come together. It looks like they will. It looks like God's sovereignty and human will are eventually going to come into conflict with each other. But I think what Scripture teaches is that those two things run parallel to each other, and God uses both of those things in His sovereign, saving work. Is that confusing? Absolutely. Is it difficult for us to wrap our mind around? Sure it is. But to be honest with you, I don't know how we can study God who, who, who says all over the place that there are things that he has not revealed to us that we don't run into these things all over the place. Where we say, I don't get it. I don't understand how that works. And I kind of think God's like, I know. That's the point. That's how that's supposed to be. Third thing that I think we can draw from this is that we should not be amazed uh, that some are not saved, we should be amazed that some are saved at all. There's nothing in us that should cause verse 4 to be in the Bible. That God desires all men to be saved. The verse shouldn't be there. There's nothing that says God should be that way. We assume that God should be that way because we've heard God and grace all tied together most of our lives. But it, there's, there's nothing that would... If that verse wasn't there, God would be just as great. There's nothing that should, that should make us say, look at that and say, well, of course God desires everyone to be saved. That's who God is. You know how we know that's who God is? Because that verse is there. Like, there's nothing in us that should make God be that way. By all rights, God should not desire that any of us be saved. By all rights, that shouldn't be there. That God desires all to be saved is a remarkable statement from Paul that should fill us with wonder and awe. Instead, what it typically fills us with is a bunch of questions and uh, ready to argue with somebody. Don't miss, listen, I, I can enjoy a good theological argument. I can enjoy kind of chopping stuff up. Man, I, I like that stuff. I, I like working through that stuff. But sometimes we can get so bent out of shape on trying to argue about stuff that we miss the most glorious truth that's right there in front of us. That he saves any of us. That he would desire to save any of us. He doesn't do it kind of like, okay, fine, you've whined enough, fine, I'll save you. This is not like, this, this is not like okay, I, reluctantly. This is what God desires, and that is to save. Many people will study verse 4 and never draw from it the most truly amazing thing that I think we can know. That Jesus loves us. And we know it because the Bible tells us so. And we miss that. 
Yes, there's all kinds of head-spinning theological implications there, but the biggest is that God doesn't desire that we should all endure endless punishment for our sin and betrayal to our Creator, but instead He desires that we be saved. Second Peter chapter 3 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So where does that put me on the, the scale? Am I, am I Calvinist? Am I Arminian? Am I, some of y'all know those terms, and you're like, oh, yeah, there's a lot there. Some of y'all are like, what's he talking about? I don't know where it puts me on that scale. It probably makes me neither, to be honest with you. But I'm just trying to read what the text says here for us. A few other things we can draw from this. We should desire that all men be saved, just like God does. This should... And I want to be clear, this does not mean that we should be praying that people would become one of us, that they would, they would join our team, they would get on our side. What it means is that, that God would work in their hearts and that they would, they would come to God. Salvation is not about becoming like us, our culture, our customs, our traditions, our way of church. It is about becoming like Him. We aren't converting people to us, but to Him. And there should be no hesitation in a single conversation, a single prayer, a single moment that God doesn't desire a person to be saved. Listen, I don't know where you sit on that scale if you consider yourself to be a firm Calvinist and you consider yourself to be firmly in the camp of God's sovereignty and if you're comfortable with that label. I, I don't know where you sit, but I'll tell you this. If your view of God's sovereignty means that he, you think that God doesn't desire some to be saved, then you've misread the scriptures. God desires all to be saved. Salvation is a, great, a, a gift from God. And there should be no hesitation in our conversations to share that gift with people. Do we know who will be saved? No, we don't. Do we know how God works in people's lives? No, we don't. But we also know that every one of us in here, every one of us, had somebody share the gospel with us that said, I think God desires that person to be saved. And it's the only way that God... I'm not going to say it's the only way. It's the primary way that God draws his people. It's through me and you saying, God wants you to come to him. God wants you. And if you neglect evangelism because you think, ah, God will just take care of that, you are in sin. Will God work in spite of that sin? Absolutely. But that is not how evangelism works. There is no place for us to say, well, God would never for that guy. God desires all, and our evangelism should look like that truth. Kings and authorities over us, people persecuting and against us, them, God desires all. And finally, whether you hold that God's will or man's will is sovereign, the reality of this, the, 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 re, the reality of all of it is this. We all need a Savior. 
I know that feels like a cop-out. I know that feels like, oh, man, I thought we were going to answer all of these questions and everything. I know that feels like that a little bit, but I'm, I'm just telling you, this is the point. This is what, what Paul is trying to draw us to here in all of this in chapter 1 and chapter 2. We all are equal in front of the cross. And that means two things. One, it means that we are all condemned because of the law. This is what he was talking about in chapter 1. The law is good, and this is the use of the law. We are all condemned because of the law. But the offer of salvation stands for everyone in front of the cross. We all need a Savior. We all need Jesus, and he is the only one that can help us. So let's go back to what I said at the very beginning, negotiables, non-negotiables. If you want to like highlight different emphasis and how does God do these different things and how does God work through all these different things, we can go back and forth and we'll all land on different things. This is a non-negotiable. Jesus is the only one that can help us and we all need him. This is verse five, for there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. So Paul, Paul delivers these kind of like, you know, these kind of big verses. Pray for these people. Know that, that the reason that you pray for these people is that because even though they're not like you and even though they're part of the them camp, God desires that they be saved just like he desires you to be saved. But the reality is you all need to be saved. This is what Paul's driving at here. The point is to get to the glory of Jesus in salvation, not the debate on how does it all work. It's, it's good, it's useful for us to talk about that. I don't want dis, to dismiss the, this, this kind of trying to work through in our heads, how does God do these things? Because I think the deeper we go into that, the more glorious God is. I don't hesitate to talk about the bigness of God and the littleness of us. On my, in my view of the way that the Scripture works this stuff out, this skews heavily on the side of God is the one in control. But the point Paul is making is that Jesus is the one we need. However you get there, he's the one that we need. He's the one mediator between God and man. He's the one guy that can knock down that wall. He's the one guy that can get you through all of that. And it's his blood alone that pays the ransom on your head. The ransom that you put there with your sin. And that's the point that he's making. So, what do we do with this? How do we make this? I mean, I think some of the points are clear. Evangelism is our job. It is for everyone. We are to go out and share the good news of the one mediator between God and man. That is our task. That God is great and glorious in the fact that, that he decides to save any, let alone that he would desire all to be saved. We also know that, that apart from that one mediator, that sin that everyone has is what condemns them to hell apart from Christ. How does God work in all that? I'm not 100% sure. But I know he calls us to the glory of Jesus, to the righteousness of Christ, and to the blood of Christ. 
And that's what we sing about, that's what we celebrate, that's what we are going to be about as a church. And it's all to his glory. Listen, this is not, this is not God desires all to be saved because he looked at all of us and he said, oh, what a prize. It's because he looked at us and he said, I'm going to show my glory to them in my grace. And we get to glorify him by exalting in that grace. He is glorified when we celebrate that. He is glorified whenever we talk about that. He is glorified whenever we sing about that. He is glorified when our hearts rejoice in that. And that's what we're going to do. Let's pray. Father, this morning I am thankful for things that we cannot understand. I am thankful that you are too big, that you are too great, that your grace and your mercy are are so magnificent that we can't even begin to wrap our arms fully around it. But Father, I know that you have revealed to us portions of that. And I just ask this morning that you would not let us get caught up in the endless debates, but instead we would get caught up in the grace of Jesus. And that it would make our hearts sing that it would make our hearts unite and that we would never shy away from celebrating that truth so father we lift you up this morning as great magnificent indescribable all-powerful And yet gracious, loving, and pursuing us in our sin. And we thank you for Jesus. Amen.